welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Since we all depend on something or someone at some point in our lives, being dependable is a key trait we look for. How dependable do you believe God is? Teaching team member Jeff Norris starts the new series, Rooted, a lifestyle of radical dependence, with this message entitled Radical Dependence, an introduction, which covers Psalm 121 and Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into where God's leading us this morning. Father, thank you. Thank you for all that you're doing, not just here at Perimeter, but throughout the world, through your people. Thank you for how your kingdom is expanding and growing and that you are getting glory, often in ways that we don't even see. And Lord, we pray for this morning. We pray for our hearts to hear from you. We pray that this would be a time where you do what only you can do in us. Uh, that we would be a church as a result who depends on you in such a way that you do what only you can do through us. And so, Father, bless this time. Holy Spirit, come. Be our teacher. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a freedom that comes being told that you're doing something wrong. Now, it's not necessarily something that we enjoy. It may sting. It may hurt. We may want to get defensive and, and push back and tell why we're doing something right. But when we realize, perhaps through the help of another, that we have been doing something wrong, there's actually a freedom that comes with that. That we are then able to say, well, how do I do it right? I have this vivid memory from when I was in kindergarten. Rachel makes fun of me because I have all these just vibrant memories of my childhood. Um, I think they're all real. I may have made up a few. But this one I remember very vividly. It's one of two memories I have from kindergarten, the other being my friend Matt eating a purple crayon. <laughs> other than that, this is my other memory from kindergarten, and it, and it went like this. I was doing a craft. The whole We each were at our desk, and we're working on something. I don't remember what the craft was, but it included glue. And I thought the more glue, the better. It'll stick. Whatever it is will stick better. So I poured out the glue. And my teacher comes over and she bends down to me and she says, can I use yours as an example? I said, yes, you may. That's right. Everybody look here. She proceeds to hold it up and my chest goes out. And she says, class, this is what you don't want to do. And I was deflated and I still haven't gotten over it to this day apparently. <laughs> now it was, it, I mean, yeah, it, it hurt, but I remember she was a good teacher. She kneeled down with me and she said, after embarrassing me to the class, she said, here's what you wanna do. And so even though I didn't like being called out that I was doing it wrong, it opened the door for an opportunity to learn, well, what is the right way? We are a people who are naturally wired. We are, we are, are people who want to do it right. We want to, uh, even if we have been, for whatever reason, if our life has been one of a consistent disobedience to other people and even to God, uh, deep down within us, we want to get it right. And, and this is evident in the fact of, of religiosity all over the world. 
If you believe in a higher being, there's this something within you that wants to perform, that wants to morally perform, religiously perform uh, in order to get it right. What we miss along the way is in all our efforts to get it right, what the scriptures teach us is that we will never get it right, that we will always get it wrong. But we long to get it right. We're performance junkies. Randy has taught this a lot over the years. And what the scriptures show us time and time and time again is that we will never get it right. In all of our efforts to please God, in all of our efforts to, uh, to get to him, to position ourselves as this is now, finally, I'm right before him, it will never be enough. And so what the scriptures do is they show us time and time and time again in a gracious way, but in a truthful way, we're doing it wrong. And the scriptures shape us and form us and point us not to the right way necessarily, but to the right one. I wanna take you to Psalm 121 this morning and we wanna look at a text that shows us how we tend to get it wrong and points us to the one that we most desperately need who is always getting it right. Now, I wanna to talk to you this morning about this subject of radical dependence. You'll see in your handout there that it says radical dependence and introduction. Today is an introductory sermon to where we're going in the weeks to come. And when Randy told me a month and a half ago, a month and a half ago, a year and a half ago, uh, that, that he and the leadership team were looking in my direction looking at me to be his successor. Uh, once I woke up after fainting, just kidding. I realized in that moment and in many days and months since then that God was calling me into an endeavor that required much, much more than just casual dependence upon him. He was calling me into something that the word that I keep using with our staff and with our officers is the word radical. Radical dependence. I don't personally even love that word. I feel like it's a word that uh, in recent times has been used so often that it carries with it lots of different connotations. And so a lot of us hear that word in different ways and some of those are negative. But as I was thinking about what is God calling not just me, but our church into in this season and in the years to come, it must be accompanied with nothing less than radical dependence. It can't be casual dependence upon him. It must be radical, radically meaning uh, that as the world looks at us, as the outside communities look at us, and even as we engage with one another, it can only be described as unique, different, other, that we're not just going through the motions. We're not just playing church. We're not just pushing the right buttons because we know that this will work but we are humbly on our knees saying, God, you must do what only you can do to lead us. This has never been Randy's church and it will never be Jeff's church. This is the church of Jesus Christ and we must follow him radically dependent on where he leads us. Even if that includes, involves leading us in areas that we are greatly uncomfortable with. We want to be radically dependent upon him. And so we go to the text to see what does that look like to be a radically dependent people. Listen to the words of Psalm 121. 
I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. I want to give you two things this morning about radical dependence. And the first one is this. We want to be a church. We need to be a church who are radically dependent vertically. Okay, this probably goes without saying, but we are radically dependent on God. And that's the posture of our church. That's what defines us, is that we are not a people dependent upon ourselves to figure out how to do church strategy in a way that it works, but that we are a radically dependent people upon God to say, God, you take your church where you want and we will be obedient. Because where does our help come from? It comes from him. Now, this psalm that we just read was written in a time when God's people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, would pilgrim. They would journey once a year, at least once a year, for the, for the big feast of God's people, which is the feast of the Passover. But many would also journey many times a year for the other feasts as well. And as they were journeying from the various places in Israel where they were to Jerusalem for Passover, they would ascend to the Temple Mount. They would ascend to the temple. And the temple was built on the highest place in Jerusalem, the Mount, if you will, Mount Zion. And so as they are coming from all corners, they are singing songs. If you'll notice in your Bible, from Psalm 120 until Psalm 134, there are 15 songs recorded for us that are called the Songs of Ascent. These are the songs that God's people would sing as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And they would sing these songs in many ways to preach truth to themselves, to remind themselves what we're doing, why we're going here, and who our God is. Now, it's also interesting that this was also during a time, and really this was indicative of Israel throughout their history, but it was particularly significant during the time that this psalm was written, where God's people were easily distracted and easily led astray by false gods, by idols. And so as these men and women would journey to Jerusalem, it would be very common that there would be idols to false gods that were set in the hills on the high grounds of worship to these false gods. Most prominently was the the God of Baal. This is the one that you hear about over and over and over again of God's people worshiping Baal, these foreign gods that would come in and infiltrate uh, God's people to where it wasn't just about worshiping the one true God, but it was about worshiping him plus all these other gods. Caleb talked about this some last week. In a sense, they felt like they needed to cover their basis because not only is he the God who can keep us, but maybe if he falls short, short, these other gods will keep us as well, will keep us safe, will provide for us, so on and so forth. 
uh, particularly if you were coming from the east to Jerusalem. If you were coming from the region of Jericho across the Judean desert, this is what it would have looked like. This is a picture that I snapped back in 2016. Jericho is a few miles behind me and I'm looking west towards Jerusalem. And that's the Judean desert. And that little path that runs through there, that road is following uh, the path that would have probably been in the same vicinity of the Jericho road, the infamous Jericho road. This is the road that Jesus spoke of when he gave the teaching on the parable of the Good Samaritan. This was a road that everyone knew about because it was the only way from Jericho to Jerusalem because of that terrain. And it was infamous because it was dangerous. It was a common place for thieves to camp out and hide and ambush people who were journeying along the way to rob them, to beat them. And so the story of the Good Samaritan was something that was not just something in Jesus's imagination. It was something that was common. They would have understood this. And so as the pilgrims, God's people would pilgrim to Jerusalem, they would have gone down a path like this. Another, one, another way to look at it is this picture. This is taken from now from Jerusalem, a few miles behind me, looking back to the east to Jericho. And you'll notice those little trees down in the valley there. That's where there was a small little stream water source and the road would have followed along through there. But along the way, imagine, if you will, that in all these little hills and in these little caves and crevices and folds in the rock, all along the way, up in the hills are these idols, these places of worship, these high grounds of worship to God's other than Yahweh, the God of Israel. And it was so enticing, it was so uh, distracting to the people of Israel as they journeyed to want to go up there and make sacrifice. You'll notice in the text, listen to some of the things that it says. It says, I lift, I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? And now we understand why they're asking that question, right? You understand now that it was common for people, even if you weren't an Israelite, even if you weren't a follower of Yahweh, you were looking to the hills for your help. And God's people would often buy into that lie as well. But what the psalmist is saying, what the song is, is singing over God's people is to say, verse two, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In other words, we're looking past the hills to the maker of the hills. And our eyes need to be fixed on him. We keep reading and he says in verse three, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither, neither slumber nor sleep. Now, why would the psalmist use this language? Think about it. The terrain, Judean desert, the path is steep at places and it's rocky and there's loose rock. And so there was fear that you might slip and fall and careen down. And so, as you would imagine, there was a God for that. There was a place that you could go up into the hills and you can make either sacrifice or payment to this false God who would then, a priest would then mediate over that and either pour out a blessing on you or even give you some type of magical thing that you can say over yourself. And with that, you're protected from falling on any loose rock. And so God says, I will not let your foot be moved. Trust in me. Not in that silliness. 
He keeps going and talks about God not slumbering or sleeping. Why would he say that? Well, it was commonly known in that day that Baal, the God of Baal, his followers would talk about how he slept and they would have to awaken him. And so you would have to go through all these incantations and all these chants and all these dances in an attempt to wake up Baal. If you go back to 1 Kings, there's the account of Elijah who called down fire on the prophets of Baal. And remember, if you've read the story or familiar with it, there was this long season where Elijah gave the prophets of Baal all these opportunities for Baal to show up and do what they claim he can do and he wouldn't show up. And so they're doing all these chants and all these dances and all these incantations and Elijah begins to mock them. And he begins to say, maybe your God is asleep. Shouldn't you wake him? And it's in that context that God is reminding his people in this song that they would sing, I won't fall asleep. I never sleep or slumber. You keep reading in verse five, the Lord is your keeper. Notice how many times in this text that is said, that he keeps us or he is our keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. People traveling were fearful of the sun by day and the moon by night, sun with how it would scorch them in the desert and they wouldn't have enough water. Uh, the moon by night, because why? Why would you be afraid of the moon? Well, it's at night, even then as it is for us now, true, uh, that it's at night when our fears grow strongest. You can imagine if you're journeying down a winding, dark, lonely desert road in the Judean desert, how much more fearful would you become at night of what's lurking around the corner? And so what would you do? There were idols for that. You would go, you would go to these makeshift idols in the hills where there would be a sun God and a sun goddess that would be attended by these sun priests or priestesses and these moon priests or priestesses. And you would go to them and they would even beckon you to come to them through male and female prostitutes to woo you in. It was wicked in every way. And God's people would often buy the lie that I need that to keep me. That will keep me more than he will. And God sings over his people, verse six, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Remember, people of God, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going in wherever you go, whatever you do, you're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. It is absolutely imperative that we begin to see, that we understand that the struggle that God's people had in this day with the idols in the hills is the same struggle that we have today with the idols of the heart. You can imagine how easy it would have been for those people to keep running to the idols in the hills because they felt tangible. They felt like there was an immediate response much more so than an invisible God. And we today, we do the same thing. It may not be a physical thing that we run, run to, maybe it is. But in the hills of our heart, we keep looking to the hills where all these false gods, gods are that we think will keep us rather than looking past them to see that no, the, the answer that we long for, the one that we long for is not found in those hills. He is the maker of the hills. He is so much greater than what I often settle for. 
Uh, don't you hate it when, um, when you think somebody's waving at you? Someone's, you know, gleefully waving and you gleefully wave back and then you see their face and they, they start getting awkward. <laughs> and then you realize, oh no, it's happened again. And you turn around and you realize they're waving at somebody past you. And you kind of, oh. And, or you respond by putting it back on them and being like, no, 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 I wasn't waving at you. I was waving at... <laughs> because we will self-protect at any measure, right? In a sense, in a silly sense, in a way that hopefully you and I can remember, that's what we are to do to the idols of the heart that are in the hills of our heart, if you will. We are to look past them as they beckon us, as they woo us, as they say, you gotta come to me. Hey, come on, come on, come on. We look past them to say, I'm not waving at you. I'm not looking at you. I'm looking past you to something greater, to something better. That's what the scriptures are calling us to do. And we, just like the Israelites, we are a fickle people, so easily distracted. We quickly run to the hills of wealth, of success, of reputation, because we think that those things will keep us. Six times in the text, it says that God is our keeper. And now we see, as we see the revelation of God unfold in the person of Jesus, we see that he is the one that fulfills all of this because John 10 tells us that he is the good shepherd, that it's not just some abstract thing of like, oh, God will keep us. It's in the person of Jesus who is the keeper. He is the good shepherd. He will not let you fall away. He will keep you. It says that, Jesus says that for those who are mine, I hold them in my hands. And not only that, but the Father too also holds you in his hands. So uh, if you were a follower of Christ, there is no better place for you to be, to be kept, if you will, than in the hands of Jesus. He is our keeper. Yet we so quickly forget what a good shepherd he is. The New Testament tells us in John 14, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is our helper, capital H. And he lives inside of us and he dwells inside of us. So Israel, the, the people of Israel could only look to God past the hills. We get to have God, not way out there somewhere, but in us. Our ever-present help who keeps us. We want to run to the hills of all kinds of things, thinking that they will keep us. For some, it's sexual addiction. For others, it's control, controlling people, controlling circumstances, controlling our life. We're fighting a battle in our house right now that is a massive idol around the corner in the fold of the rock, and it's called screen time. And we're battling with a teenager and a preteen over this very issue. But what I have noticed is, a, is I've battled this with my kids. I'm seeing reflected in their heart the very same thing in mine. I just like being harder on them than I am myself. 
because I see within my own heart the addiction to think that I've always got to be looking at this thing, that what's happening through this, whether it be mail, whether it be text, whether it be a news article, whether it be a sports notification that I have to click on, whatever it is, social media, how many likes do I have, whatever it is, I am convinced that at some level that will keep me and I cannot put it down. And youth, I want you to hear me. Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, they're destroying you. And here's why, because they beckon you into the hill crevice where an idol sits that tells you that how many likes you get on a post defines your worth. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Adults, we're not off the hook either. We run to Facebook. That's the old person social media. <laughs> if we're a little bit younger and a little bit hipper, we'll, we'll go to Instagram. 75% of you don't even know what TikTok and Snapchat are. But we do the same thing. We run to the same hill, we bow at the same idol, we buy the same lie, that I am what that silly app tells me I am. And we don't run to the keeper of our hearts. We don't run to the good shepherd, we struggle. Let me talk to you for a moment about how idols work you'll see printed there in your, in your handout, the path of idolatry. The way idolatry works in the heart of, human, of a human is this. It starts with distraction. We're distracted people. We look all around to find what we long for most. And the more distracted that we become, the more we dream about what that particular idol can offer us. And listen, an idol is not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. It's not always overtly sinful. It can be a very good thing that we turn into a God. We let it take the place of God where our deepest affections and our identity now lies in it rather than God. I mean, it could be a hobby. It could be tennis. It could be golf. It could be your work. It could be your family. It could be the success of your kids. It could be all kinds of of things that in and of themselves are not sinful, but it can certainly be sinful things as well, obviously. But we become distracted by them to the extent that we become uh, to this place of dreaming about what they could give us, if only. And that dreaming leads to desperation, that we become desperate for that thing so much so that we have to begin depending on it to give us what we so long for. And this is where that ends. When we become so dependent upon an idol, we end in disillusionment and ultimately in destruction. Realizing that, that all we've been chasing is a diminishing return that will never give us what we long for. will always disappoint. 
Let me talk to you about the path of radical dependence upon God. Interestingly enough, it starts the same way. We, by our nature, are distracted people. We begin to look all over and dream all over of what could be, and we become desperate. But the difference happens on the dependence part that we begin to see by God's grace and his intervention in our life that what we need to depend on out of our desperation is not all of those things in the hills of our hearts, but upon him. And as we do that, not perfectly, but slowly but surely, we begin to trust him more. We begin to radically depend on him more and more. And we venture off and we go here, we go there, but he leads us back and we say, okay, I'm gonna depend upon you and you alone. I wanna surrender to you and you alone. I don't wanna trust the lies of the hills. I wanna look past them to you, O Lord. And as he does that, something significant begins to happen. It doesn't end in disillusionment and destruction. It actually begins to lead us into dispossession of those idols. That in the presence of our God and in the satisfaction of who he is for us, we drop those things. And that leads us down the path of delight. An ever-growing, ever-increasing delight in the one true God. I talked to you about radical dependence vertically. I wanna briefly hit on one other thing. Turn with me to Mark 2. In your bulletins, I made a mistake when I sent it to the folks who print our bulletin I sent Mark 5, 1 through 5, and if you went ahead and read in Mark 5 ahead of time, you were probably like, man, how is he going to preach this? <laughs> that is going to be an interesting sermon. Now, hopefully I will preach that one day, but not today. Mark 2, 1 through 5. This is Jesus now. We're in the New Testament. It says, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. Just quick pause. Can you imagine? The son of God in the flesh, the, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the prince of peace, the one true God in the flesh is preaching the word to them. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I think we'll get to know one day. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now that they uh, insinuates there was more than just four men carrying. It was more than just five men in the story. It was a whole community of people. And in that community, there were four men carrying this paralytic. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Wow. So this is rock star Jesus status right now. This is before he began to talk about things about like how he has to go to the cross and he, you have to eat and drink of my flesh. And all these people were like, okay, I'm not following you anymore. But before he said all that, everybody's following him and there's masses everywhere and they can't get to him. And so they're so determined to get this brother who cannot help himself to the feet of Jesus so that Jesus can do what only he can do, that they're willing to dig through this rooftop that is in some way the house of Jesus, probably not his house, probably Mary's house, who had probably moved. There's a lot of probabilities, we don't know, but the Capernaum. And they have these, these dirt, mud, thatch roofs and they begin digging through it and there's no indication that Jesus stops teaching. That's pretty funny. I mean, if somebody starts digging through my roof, I'm gonna be like, hey, y'all hold up for a second. And I'm gonna walk outside. I'm gonna go, hey guys, you don't have to do that. We'll, we'll open the door. But Jesus lets them do it. 
And they don't just dig a little, uh, you know, a little hole so they can drop a note in there. Hey, Jesus, could you come outside, please? <laughs> they dig a hole big enough for a bed to be dropped in. And they drop him at the feet of Jesus. It says in verse five, and when Jesus saw, notice the word, their faith. He says to the paralytic, son, your, son, your sins are forgiven. And we go, hold up, I don't have a theological category for this. I thought this was all about my faith that I have to believe upon Jesus. You can't believe for me. Yes, that's true. But however, God's pushing us here to say, there is a radical dependence upon each other. So that's the second thing, radical dependence horizontally. There is a radical dependence upon each other to where we are so committed to one another as we are dependent upon him that we begin to do for each other what the other can't do for themselves. Meaning we are willing to do whatever we can do to get that person to the feet of Jesus so that Jesus can do what only he can do in their life. I mean, think about the story. These men were so devoted to their brother. We don't even know if the paralytic wanted this to happen but they bring him and they set him at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He just was there and was like, wow. And you think about how often this happens in church. How often God's people so dependent upon him begin to pray and encourage someone to the feet of Jesus into the community of believers. And before they know it, before they can really figure out what's happening, they're believing upon this Jesus too. And it happens both for the non-believer who is brought into the fold. It happens for the believer who is struggling in the fold. I think about my life, 2002, Rachel and I get our first assignment with Campus Crusade for Christ. And we're in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I was a 22-year-old overconfident man, newly married. Thought I would be able to go down there and I would just do ministry and it would be awesome. And nothing I tried worked. And, and I have often said that Hattiesburg is where God took me to kick my tail, to humble me. Within a matter of months, I had spiraled into deep anxiety and depression. And in most days I could only make it to the couch and I couldn't get up. And some days I couldn't even get out of the bed. And I didn't know how to get out of this abyss that I was in. And even if I did know how, I didn't have the emotional, the physical, or the spiritual strength to do it. But there was a community of people around me, most notably my wife, who prayed me and encouraged me out of the abyss. They virtually took me on my bed and they dug the hole through their prayers and through their encouragement and through their, even their medical input. And they put me at the feet of Jesus and said, let him do the rest, let him do what you can't do. And slowly but surely as these people prayed and encouraged me to the feet of Jesus, he did his work. We are to be a church that is radically dependent on Jesus as he leads his church. And as we are radically dependent upon him, we are also to be a people who are radically dependent upon one another to carry one another when we're too weak to do so ourselves. The individualism and the consumerism of modern church has been well-documented. We are to be different. This is an introduction to radical dependence. Where we're headed in a couple of weeks, Randy, like I said, will give his final charge next week. And then in two weeks on September 29th, we're gonna start a seven week series. 
The name of that series is going to be Rooted, and the subtitle is A Lifestyle in Radical Dependence. And I'm going to lead us through seven roots that must be watered, if you will, and nourished in order for us to be a people who flourish in our walks with God. So would you pray with me that that series would be a way, would be a time where the Lord speaks to us in a significant way as we seek to be a radically dependent people. Let me finish with this. I love this quote. We're about to sing. I want to frame our singing. As I mentioned, God's people would journey to Jerusalem and they would sing these songs of ascent to sing truth over themselves, to remind their hearts, don't run to the hills, run to the maker of the hills. Uh, These songs were battle songs. These songs were anti-idolatry anthems that they would sing. I love this quote from John Whitfield. He says this, every time we sing praise to the triune God, we are asserting our opposition to anything that would attempt to stand in God's place. Every hymn of praise is a little anti-idolatry campaign. When we sing, how do we close our service every, every week? Think about this when you sing it today, when you sing the doxology. When we sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow, we are also saying, down with the gods from whom no blessings flow. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who keeps us. Lord, help us by your helper, the spirit who is within each believer in here. Would you convince us more and more to dispossess the idols that we want to hold on to so tightly that we think will keep us and to begin to delight in you and experience all that you are, Jesus, as the one who satisfies our souls. God, we want to be a dependent church, a radically dependent church. On you and on each other, would you make us that? And would you do it for your glory? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand, let's sing together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.